morning. Let's pray together. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for a a beautiful morning. Thank you for uh, these people that you have gathered together in your house. Lord, I just pray that uh, as I as I speak this morning, that uh, you wouldn't let my words or the way that I say them get in the way of whatever message um, you want people to hear from your word. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'm really excited to be able to share with you today from uh, Luke 20 as we continue our journey through Luke. Uh, I've titled this sermon, Beware of the Scribes. Uh, We'll we'll see that come into play here as we get towards the end um, of Luke 20. Just to lay a little bit of the context uh, of what we're seeing at this particular point, uh, if you recall in Luke 19, Jesus has entered Jerusalem knowing this is going to be the final stage of his ministry on earth. Um, And um, we know that coming shortly uh, is going to be the crucifixion. Ultimately, I think that, that, that begs us to, to ask the question, um, why did Jesus' teaching inspire such hostility? Why uh, does uh, this, this kind and gentle teacher uh, cause such an uproar that people are out to kill him? We see some of that throughout the entire story of Luke uh, as we see Jesus say things that are going to be offensive uh, or controversial many, many times. Um, But ultimately, I think here in Luke 20, we see all of that kind of come to uh, a crux as uh, the the people who are are listening to to Jesus speak um, reach new new heights as far as their anger towards him. We're actually going to pick up the story uh, right at the end of Luke 19 with where Justin finished last week. And so we'll start with Luke 19, 45. And he entered the temple... And began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So the first thing that we see here uh, is that there's uh, a crowd. There's a, a lot of people who are actually listening Uh, to what Jesus is saying, and it tells us that they're hanging on his words. Uh, Ultimately, uh, the gospel has crowd appeal, uh, and we see that with Jesus's teaching here in the temple. But we see that not everyone's happy about it. We're we're told that there are these chief priests, scribes, principal men of the people uh, who are upset about the message that Jesus is giving. Why are they upset? We're going to take a little bit of a closer look at that here. First, the setting of where all this is happening. Uh, As you can see, this is just a model of what the temple might have looked like at this particular point in time. Um, There's this large uh, kind of open court that's inside of the temple complex, but not actually uh, within the temple itself. It's called the Court of the Gentiles. That's probably where Jesus is doing his teaching at this point in time, uh, within that that open space of the temple. Um, And that's where all of the uh, the, the money changing and those who were selling uh, were, were actually doing all of those activities. So ultimately, he drove them out of that space, um, and now Jesus is, is teaching there instead. 
To actually, though, understand um, why these chief priests, scribes, and principal men of the people are upset about what Jesus is saying, I think it's worth spending a few minutes just trying to take a look at who these people were and, and how they fit into the cultural context at that point in time in Israel. And so first off, uh, Rome has dominion over Israel at this point. Um, they have, uh, the, the Rome, Roman rule has established a series of kings uh, to essentially serve as the governors of, of the, that Israeli state that is underneath Rome. Um, and those kings are generally referred to as the Herods, ultimately Herod the Great, and then uh, the, the kingdom was divided up among his children uh, as it followed him. Underneath this system, though, where, where Rome has set a king over Israel that's basically in their pocket, uh, as long as Israel maintains that Roman law and offers the required annual tribute, uh, Israel's allowed to function with a reasonable level of local self-governance. Um, that's not to say that there's no conflict still between Rome and, and the, the state of Israel. Uh, in fact, King Herod went so far as to require a sacrifice to be given at the temple in honor of Rome and the emperor, which uh, if you can imagine would have been extremely offensive uh, to uh, those of the Jewish faith. Um, he also installed a golden eagle at one of the entrances of the temple as an acknowledgement of the, the symbology of Rome. Um, and he leveraged some really heavy taxes on the Israelites to pay for local Roman building projects. So there's still conflict, but ultimately, with this setup, um, as long as Israel, through the king, does what they're supposed to, they're given a lot of leeway to, to more or less operate life as they want to. While that, while that king served as the nominal head of Israel on behalf of Rome, ultimately the temple in Jerusalem was established as the real cultural center of the Israelites, and that was under the leadership of a group called the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sanhedrin were a mix of political and religious Jewish leaders who met together in that temple. Uh, they discussed the law there. They settled disputes. They navigated that relationship between the practitioners of the Jewish faith and the Roman rulers as well. The Sanhedrin were generally composed of uh, a variety of people. Um, the, the three main roles of people that we'll see on the Sanhedrin are the priests, the scribes, and the elders. Think of these as essentially occupations uh, that these people would have. The, the priests were those who actually worked in the temple and they, they facilitated the activities that took place in that temple, offering of sacrifices and caring for the, the temple complex. The scribes were uh, originally those who were essentially functioning as secretaries, handling any sort of written word, uh, including copying uh, and, and distributing the law. But at this point in time, the scribes had actually transformed to become not just those who copied the law, but also those who taught it. Um, and so the, the scribes we can think of as teachers of the law. And then finally, the elders were men who were appointed to these positions of uh, leadership where they would essentially serve as representatives of a larger body of people. Um, and um, they, uh, they, they, would, they would represent those people in the Sanhedrin and in any other uh, local governing issues. So those are all positions of authority, essentially jobs, roles that people would have. I want to contrast that with some terms that we see all the way throughout uh, the, the New Testament uh, that is kind of a little bit of a different idea. Uh, these, these other four groups are actually uh, religious sects, or you might think of them as um, sort of a religious political group. There, there's some politics that comes into this as well. And I want to take a look at these four different groups briefly. The first is the Pharisees. Um, the Pharisees generally were considered to represent the common people. Uh, that was 
the, the group that they were most interested in trying to please. Uh, the Pharisees believed in an expanded version of the law, meaning uh, that they not only held holy the Tanakh, uh, essentially our, the Old Testament, the scriptures at the time, uh, but they also believed in uh, valuing this oral tradition, all these additional rules and laws that had been passed down from generation to generation. The Pharisees essentially held those as at equal value with the written law. The Pharisees also more readily accepted uh, any sort of spiritual or supernatural aspects of, uh, of the Jewish faith, uh, which we'll see is going to contrast with the Sadducees. And as we look at the roles that these Pharisees had, they generally are going to be more associated with the scribes. Um, it's not to say that a scribe is a Pharisee. A scribe is a job. A Pharisee is more of a religious political um, affiliation. But we saw that many of the scribes most likely were Pharisees, um, given the, their relationship to the law. The Sadducees, on the other hand, tended to represent the wealthy people. They, they uh, worked in the interests of those who had wealth and power. They generally believed uh, in a much more conservative uh, understanding of the law. They only believed in the Tanakh, that, that written word, as being authoritative. Ultimately, they were very critical of any sort of spiritual or supernatural aspects of uh, the Jewish faith. Uh, and so, for example, they, dis they disregard any idea of resurrection, as we'll see a little bit later on in our study of Luke 20 here. And generally, those Sadducees would have been more associated with the priests. Uh, it's not a given that every priest would have uh, considered themselves to be a Sadducee, but we probably saw a lot of overlap between that, that role of priest and that religious political affiliation of Sadducee. It's also likely that the Sadducees were the ones who oversaw that selling and changing of money that happened in the temple. Uh, and so we can actually imagine pretty quickly why the Sadducees are already unhappy with Jesus as he just disrupted uh, some of their source of income. Now there's two other uh, major religious sects at the time in Israel, uh, the Essenes and the Zealots. Uh, both of them likely have much less impact on what's going on at this particular point in time, mostly because the Essenes uh, embraced a more monastic, uh, kind of a withdrawn approach uh, to what was going on in, in Jerusalem and politically. Um, they were favored by Rome uh, in many ways, but because they were withdrawn monastic and sort of formed their own communities, they probably weren't heavily represented in this story and, and probably weren't uh, very visible, visibly present in the temple in Jerusalem. The Zealots, on the other hand, were very much against Rome. Uh, they, they did not uh, believe that Israel should be subject to Rome in any way and often actively worked against that, uh, that, that authority of Rome. And so it's probably a reasonable conclusion that they're also not going to be visibly present uh, in this temple in Jerusalem that's really serving as a, a major intermediary between Israel and Rome. So what we're likely seeing is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are going to be the, the dominant groups that are present among these people who are uh, questioning Jesus and what we see here in Luke 20. Now, I wouldn't say that either the Pharisees or the Sadducees fit very neatly into our boxes that we have nowadays of conservative or liberal uh, approaches to politics, but I do think uh, that that's a, a reasonable analogy as we look at our modern politics to understand more or less how they felt about each other. Uh, more, more or less, each of these groups uh, essentially wanted to see the other fail, um, and they, they held their belief system so tightly that uh, they, they viewed the other group as an enemy in many ways. 
The big takeaway here from looking at uh, who constitutes these leaders, and I'll refer to them just as the leaders um, as we walk through the rest of this sermon. Um, The main takeaway here, though, is that all of these antagonists were in positions of authority because of their relationship to this religious political nexus uh, that the temple in Jerusalem had become. When Jesus came and he cleared the temple and he started preaching there, he threatened the source of their authority and power to the point where they ultimately wanted to end up seeing him dead. So let's then pick up uh, our study of Luke 20 here. We're going to run through a lot of verses, uh, but, but I think we're, we're going to be able to do it pretty quickly here. So let's start with Luke 20, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. Now, first, I just want to remember an occurrence that happened way back in Luke 2. Um, In Luke 2, the the boy Jesus and his family are visiting Jerusalem. Jesus disappears. Family worries about him, takes him a while to find him. Uh, Ultimately, they find Jesus, and he's in the temple, and he's teaching and answering questions even as a child. And when they find him and they question him, what are you doing? He says, where do you expect me to be? I'm in my father's house. 21 years later, here he is again, Jesus, back in his father's house, teaching and answering questions, uh, really just a a nice bookend, ultimately, on what we see of Jesus' earthly ministry. We also see that this starts with one day. Uh, What what that indicates here is that this is more or less what has become the norm. Jesus is preaching the the gospel in the temple on a regular basis. As we said, he knows this is the end of his ministry, um, and he's... uh, being as active as he can with trying to share the gospel with the people in Jerusalem while he still has time. Let's also acknowledge the rightness of this, okay? The temple was created to be a place where God and his people meet. This temple has never served a better purpose than when God himself, in the form of his son, is present in the temple and teaching people about the gospel, how they can actually redeem that relationship with God In the whole history of the temple, this is the high point. The leaders, though, don't see it that way. The leaders question Jesus' authority to come into what they considered to be their house. In their eyes, the temple belonged to them. Jesus didn't possess any formal credentials. He didn't have any role. He didn't have any title. He wasn't aligned with any of the dominant political, uh, religious groups of the day. And so they question, why is he here? What right does he have to stand in our temple and try to teach to our people? So what they do is they start to confront Jesus with questions, um, here and later on in Luke. The purpose of these questions that they ask is to try to alienate Jesus in front of the people. They want to make the people see what the leaders saw, that he didn't belong here teaching in the temple. He's not to be a trusted authority. He's not to be a teacher. The crowds are hanging on Jesus' every word, And the leaders feel that pressure. They want to drive a wedge between Jesus and those who are listening to him. So they start by questioning his authority. 
The next slide shows uh, an image of what this might have looked like. Um, I think it's helpful for visualizing uh, what, what this teaching actually looks like. When I, I started trying to find a picture, because I just wanted to try to visualize this myself a little bit too, what I discovered was that uh, throughout history, apparently, artists have been way more enamored with the idea of Jesus clearing the temple of all of the, the money changers and those who are selling than this idea of Jesus just peacefully teaching in the temple. Uh, I, I actually was finally able to find one artist, a, a French artist, James Tissot, here at the end of the 1800s, who painted a series of paintings of this idea of Jesus just kind of peacefully teaching in the temple. Um, but most of the other artwork I found at this time had Jesus holding a whip, which is not really what I want to focus on uh, with, with what we're talking about here today. So Jesus answers their question of authority here in verse 3. He says, it says, he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus challenges them back with his own question about the source of authority. Interestingly enough, he turns to John the Baptist and questions them on his authority. You might wonder, why does John's baptism present an issue to the leaders of the temple? Uh, baptism actually predated John quite a bit. Um, he was not the first person to, to come up with this idea of baptizing people. It was something that was a regular practice in the, the Jewish religion. Uh, it was called the mikveh. It was a ceremonial cleansing. And the idea of the mikveh was that when someone who was a Gentile uh, decided to adopt the Jewish religion, part of that ceremony would be the ceremonial cleansing, ultimately um, identifying their renunciation of their old religion and their acceptance of uh, the, the, what they viewed to be the true religion of Judaism. Now, John's charge with the baptism was to change, ultimately, who should be baptized. John was preaching that anyone needs to repent. Everyone needs to repent. Everyone needs to be baptized. Essentially, changing the group of those who should be baptized from the Gentiles to being all who want to be followers of God. This was offensive to those who considered themselves uh, to have the, right, the rights that go along with being an ethnic Jew. If you were born a Jew, born a part of this religion, there was no need for you to be baptized. Baptism was a thing that Gentiles had to do as they moved into this idea of then uh, aligning themselves with what is right. You were born into it. It was your right not to be baptized. John's message conflicted with that because he preached that everyone should, be, should, should uh, repent um, of their sins. And so that was a, a source of conflict with the leaders. It challenged uh, what they considered to be their special status as the ethnic people of God. Of course, there's also the, the small problem that John very clearly testified that Jesus was the Messiah. And so if they were to affirm his ministry then that would be the same thing as to affirm Jesus' authority, which clearly these leaders are not willing to do. So they know that they've rejected John's message. They can't say that John's message is from God. But at the same time, they also don't want to say that it was from man. What they truly believe 
because John was a really popular prophet with the people. So they go into damage control mode. Uh, they, they just say, we don't know. They, they figure that's the option that's in front of them that has the, the least negative repercussions for them. And they ultimately answer without integrity. Jesus knows this, and so Jesus refuses to answer their question as well. With that one question, Jesus caught those leaders between their self-righteousness and their fear of angering the crowds that were around them. Amid those sin-inspired motivations, the leaders clearly could not see Jesus' true authority as Son of God. Jesus continues, though, in verse 9, and he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Some of Jesus' parables can be difficult to understand and interpret. This one was clearly not intended to be so. Uh, this was about as obvious of a parable as Jesus ever told. Anyone paying attention to what Jesus said and the disposition of the leaders toward him would have been able to understand his meaning in telling this parable at this particular time. And actually, uh, to make it even more clear, Jesus is referencing a passage in Isaiah 5 uh, that talks about a vineyard as a metaphor for the house of Israel. The vineyard itself is the nation of Israel. The vineyard owner symbolizes God the Father, the tenants, then, those who have been tasked with caring for the vineyard, are the leaders of the nation of Israel. The servants are the prophets who have been repeatedly sent to and yet rejected by Israel. And then Christ ultimately was the son whom the tenants decided to kill. It's kind of a funny turn in this parable when those tenants decide that uh, they, they think that that inheritance will become theirs if they kill the heir. That's not how inheritance works. Uh, you, you don't win inheritance by, by knocking off the, the person who deserves that inheritance. But this foolish thinking is what Jesus is trying to highlight. These tenants, these leaders of Israel, think that they're going to get honor and glory and these positions of power by rejecting the true Son of God. The leaders clearly understood their position as the tenants in this parable. Those who had been granted that responsibility to care for Israel uh, but they refused to submit to the messengers or the master himself, ultimately. The morality in this parable is extremely obvious. No one's siding with the tenants here. 
And so ultimately, the, the leaders and their anger and their rejection of this message are not rejecting the morality of the parable, but instead that premise that Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus continues this, uh, this idea by acknowledging their failure to accept him as Son of God by identifying himself as the stone that will break them. Now this seems like a little bit of an odd turn here to go from talking about vineyard to talking about stones, but in the Hebrew or Aramaic languages, uh, actually the word for son, ben, and the word for stone, eben, would sound very similar. This is probably a word play that those who are listening would catch on to as he's comparing the son and then this stone in these back-to-back stories, essentially making it clear that he is the stone who was rejected but vindicated, and in its, vindica- in its vindication, uh, that stone would bring justice against those who rejected it. This idea of cornerstone, once again, comes from elsewhere in Scripture, and so the, those who were learned and listening to Jesus speak would have associated it with Psalm 118 or Isaiah 28, where it talks about the cornerstone that the builders rejected. What Jesus is doing here is he's ultimately encouraging the people, those who are listening, not the leaders, to accept what those leaders have rejected, essentially his role, his authority as son of God. The story continues in verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Jesus had just dismantled the religious authority of the leaders with his responses to their first question. And so instead, those leaders are turning their hope for a higher authority to intervene towards Rome, the the ruling, dominating authority. They're hoping that they won't themselves have to then be the ones to uh, enact justice against Jesus, but that somehow they can actually trick him into saying something that would force the, the governing, ruling Rome to step in and punish Jesus instead. Note that Jesus is not fooled by this flattery. Uh, of, of these spies. And actually, you can read how uh, overt this flattery is in, in the scripture with the, the way that they ask this question. Ultimately, I think that flattery makes it even more obvious that there is a trap here uh, with the question that they're asking. Before we look at Jesus' response, I do think there's one other interesting thing to note here. You note that these spies call him teacher. And you'll actually see people throughout the Gospels refer to Jesus as teacher many, many times. What you'll notice, though, as you look at that, generally those who call Jesus teacher are those who are outside of Jesus' believers. Those who are followers of Jesus call him Lord. Those who are not call him teacher. And we actually still see that with our modern culture and how Jesus is regarded. Moving into Jesus' response then, in verse 23... But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. 
Let's spend just a moment discussing a denarius to better understand the context of what this question is ultimately asking. A denarius, um, with the next slide here, a denarius is the equivalent of one day's wage. Uh, it was a, a coin, uh, and it was required to be sent annually as a tribute to Rome. Okay, first off, if my taxes were one day's wage, I'd be pretty happy about that. Turns out you pay way, way more than that uh, in our, our modern culture. It really was a relatively insignificant monetary sum uh, for all except for the very, very poor. The point of the denarius as tribute was more about the yearly reminder of the subjugation of Israel to the power of Rome than it was about a monetary need. You remember the census back in Luke 2 that was the whole reason that Mary and Joseph traveled to Bethlehem? The point of that census was for Rome to get an accurate count of the people that were in Israel so they could get a count of how many denarii they needed to collect from the nation in order to complete the tribute of all of those uh, underneath Roman rule. Refusing to pay this tribute was considered equivalent to sedition against Roman rule. Those who uh, refused to pay the tribute would ultimately be saying, we don't recognize Rome as our ruling authority, and Rome responded to this uh, very aggressively, uh, penalty of death. The tribute was traditionally in Jerusalem, collected by the Jewish Sanhedrin. They served as the intermediaries between the people and Rome, pulling the, the tribute together and submitting it to Rome, and they were most likely viewing this tribute as a worthwhile investment. It's not a whole lot of money to give to Rome in order to retain the ability to run the temple, to run the Jewish culture in the way that they wanted to run it without a whole lot of Roman interference. So the, the leaders probably looked on this tribute as ultimately a, a reasonable thing. But they knew that Jesus was already known for the messages that he preached advocating for inverting power. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. The leaders wondered whether Jesus would go so far as to disrupt a system that acknowledged the emperor as the highest obligation of his subjects. On the other hand, if Jesus was seen to be publicly supporting Rome, what he would be essentially saying is that he'd be affirming the Sanhedrin's role of authority as the intermediaries between the Jewish people and Rome, and ultimately, he'd almost certainly lose some favor among the people who looked much less favorably upon Rome. That favor of the crowds was the only thing currently protecting him from the full wrath of the Sanhedrin. So the way they saw it, they had come up with a question that was going to pin Jesus down. Either he would give an answer that would subject him to the wrath of Rome by refusing to acknowledge Roman authority, or he'd answer basically affirming the, the role of the Sanhedrin and distancing himself from the crowds, opening him up to wrath from the Sanhedrin. The real point of Jesus' response, though, is in contrasting what belongs to Caesar versus what belongs to God. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. Jesus talked about not serving two masters in, in Luke 16. As such, what he is ultimately saying here and what he's pointing out is that the Roman Empire is ultimately subservient to God's dominion. Caesar, Rome, has given you these coins. So be it. Give them what they're owed. God has given you everything. Give to God what he's owed. 
In his response, Jesus acknowledges the obligation that people, even his followers, have towards civic obedience to a secular government. This is not the only idea. This is not the only place in Scripture that we see that idea. It actually shows up in Romans and Hebrews and Titus and 1 Peter and other places. With that in mind, this, this obligation of obedience to a secular government in mind, let's recognize that Rome was not a benevolent or an indifferent government. Rome was demanding, it was cruel, it was blasphemous, it was clearly opposed to many of the teachings of Christ. Even this denarius itself that Jesus uses as an example, when you you look at the inscriptions that are on it, one side says, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. The other side says, high priest. It was the Roman tradition to view the emperor as divinity, as a god. And so Tiberius acknowledges himself as son of a god on the inscription. And then on the backside, that idea of high priest, uh, the, the Roman culture viewed the emperor as essentially an, an intermediary, a high priest between Rome and Rome's gods. And so once again, claiming divinity on Rome. This was blasphemous. This was very much counter to God's teaching. But still, Christ reinforces that obligation people have for obedience to a secular government. Even in the midst of that obligation, though, our allegiance as followers of God is so much greater that it renders our relationship to the earthly government trivial by comparison. Our relationship as followers of God transcends any authority that an earthly government may have over us. Next up to the plate to try to challenge Jesus are the Sadducees in verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. Let's take just a minute to recognize the sad life that this woman has led in this example uh, it's a, a very extreme example that the, the Sadducees have come up with here. In the res- resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. The Sadducees think that they've crafted a riddle that can catch Jesus in defiance of the law of Moses. The Sadducees, as the group that holds that written law as the highest authority, Uh, surely venerated Moses. He was their main guy. He was the MVP of Scripture to this point. Moses was the one who had uh, essentially established this this law that that was put into practice with this uh, tradition that's being described. This was likely a rhetorical tool that the Sadducees had used before as they've had arguments with others about this idea of resurrection. This is probably the, the gotcha Uh, that they use to to say to others that resurrection makes no sense. Here's the example. One thing that's kind of interesting to note with this is that actually this tradition of marrying a widow and raising children uh, was ultimately proposed as an alternative or or as a form of uh, trying to preserve the life of someone, just as resurrection would be. Uh, The idea here is that if someone dies early, we can still uh, establish their legacy by by, uh, having their wife cared for and having their their children raised, um, essentially preserving that man's life. Uh, 
Jesus' response then we see in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Jesus' response to the Sadducees was to point out that their question made no sense. Firstly, the Sadducees have no idea what they're talking about when it comes to heaven and resurrection. The whole first paragraph here is establishing that. You don't have a clue. You're, you're talking about something that you don't understand. Secondly, Jesus goes even farther in the second paragraph by pointing out that their, their Moses, who they held in highest regard, actually understood and acknowledged the reality of resurrection based on the, the words of Scripture. To believe the, the present tense words of the Lord that are recited here when, when Moses sees the burning bush uh, was to believe that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of whom had clearly passed away long before, were actually still, in fact, living with God. If the Sadducees trusted Moses based on this one passage of Scripture that acknowledges that God, who's God of the living, is God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the only way that that would be possible is if resurrection is true. Jesus proves that he not only understands the law of Moses, but in fact he knows it better than the Sadducees. Now remember that the Sadducees and the Pharisees are kind of these conflicting religious political parties at the time. They really are only temporarily united in their dislike of Jesus' message that threatened their hold on power. So what we see here uh, in the, the response to Jesus' answer, the scribes, who, if you may remember, are, are generally going to be Pharisees, uh, those who are on the other side of the political aisle from the Sadducees, the scribes are pleased to see Jesus put the Sadducees in place. This probably is an argument that the scribes have had with the Sadducees many times before. And so they love to, to see the way that Jesus really uh, punched back at him. But Jesus is not fooled, and neither should we be fooled. A single point of agreement, a common cause, or a common enemy does not mean that we share the same values as someone else. Christians can work alongside people with whom they share a common cause, but we should never fail, never fall for the temptation to trust the motivations of those who don't recognize Christ as Lord. Our allegiance is to the Lord, and our family consists of his followers. Anyone with a different allegiance will not lead us towards becoming more like Christ. Jesus recognized that what the scribes were doing here was attempting to publicly align themselves with his rebuke of the Sadducees. They wanted to take advantage of the, the slap down of the Sadducees to, to gain some popularity with the crowd and say, look, Jesus and us are on the same side. But Jesus struck back at this hard. In our last section here, starting with verse 41. But he said to them, 
How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus reserves his harshest rebukes in this passage for this moment as if the greatest danger to the listening crowd would be for them to mistakenly think that he and the scribes are preaching the same message. First, Jesus dismantles their standing as experts of the law. What he's doing with this passage about David is he's presenting them with a riddle that they can't solve because they don't recognize his authority as both son of man and son of God. In Jewish custom, a father would never refer to his son as Lord. Respect goes one way, up. And so presenting them with this psalm where David refers to the Messiah who would be of his line as Lord is putting before the Pharisees, the scribes, a question that they can't answer. They don't understand that the Messiah would not just be a son of David, but also son of God. Jesus has made this clear many times at this point in his ministry, but the, the Pharisees don't believe him. And since they don't believe him, since they don't believe that the Messiah is going to be son of God as well as son of man, they have no way of interpreting and understanding what's happening with this passage that Jesus is pointing out. So he destroys this idea that they are experts on the law because they have no response that they can give. Then he lays their religious pretenses bare for the crowd. He exposes their empty acts of piety and couples that with acknowledging those acts of violence that they commit against the vulnerable. And we see him criticize the Pharisees for this in other places in Scripture as well. Ultimately, as we look at the entire book of Luke 20 here, what we have is a passage that's full of warnings. I want to focus on, on several of those warnings as our takeaways today. The first is the warning of falling for traps that the world may lay before us. What authority does an uneducated, unaccomplished carpenter from Galilee a long time ago have to tell me what to do? How should I choose between aligning myself with or rebelling against my earthly authorities as if those are the only two options that I have? How can I trust those difficult doctrines of the Bible and the imperceivable future hope it supposedly offers? These are all traps that, that the world puts before us, just as the leaders tried to put them before Jesus. There's also warning here of following leaders who act in their own interests. The Jewish religious leaders were supposed to be stewards of God's people, but they completely missed Jesus' coming as the prophesied Messiah, and they repeatedly acted in their own interests instead of the peoples who they were supposed to care for. While that blending of politics and religion that existed in the Jewish temple at Jesus' time was a specific case, that idea is hardly unique. As we look throughout history, we can find many groups, many people, who have adopted that same idea of blending religious piety and political ambition. 
the religious political leaders in this passage of Scripture chose to crucify their Savior rather than risk their own positions of power. We also have warning of trusting allies of circumstance who do not share godly motivations. While we will often find our interests aligned with others who do not share our trust in the Lord, we do well to remember that the difference in our motivations means that while our paths may cross, we are not ultimately on the same path together. We should feel a greater kinship to brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we may not agree on particular issues than to those who share our interests but not our faith. In a world where it seems like every step that we take may lead us astray, what hope do we ultimately have? The good news is a lot. Christians need to be wary of these worldly deceptions related to authority and power, but our hope is secure in the authority of God's word in the person of Jesus Christ. For the Christian, true authority is clear. As a son of man, Jesus understands us. As a son of God, he's our all-powerful creator. No one has ever had greater authority to teach us than Jesus. We cannot serve two masters. We're to obey and respect our earthly authorities, but we're never to confuse that relationship with our ultimate allegiance to our Savior alone. And finally, the Bible itself tells us of its trustworthiness as the word of God. And we see that in this passage even, as Jesus clearly uh, believed in the truth of the scripture as he quoted it. And the Bible also proves itself trustworthy as we read and follow it. Finally, Jesus is the servant leader and trustworthy ally in whom our hopes are sound. I think uh, the, the, the verse that reflects this best that I want to end with here is from Hebrews 4. 14 through 16, where it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. My encouragement to you today is to to heed Jesus' warnings in this passage. Beware of the scribes, but also hold on to the hope he offers as well. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, thank you for your words in this passage. Uh, Lord, thank you for the, the gift that you give us in the person of Jesus, the salvation that he offers, but also the example that he gives. Lord, I I pray that you would help each of us to trust only in those uh, who we know uh, are are secure. I I pray that you would help us to to keep our motivations, uh, to keep our priorities aligned with what's honoring to you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.